0: You know, uh, this world is uh, uh, has an agenda. You you do know that the world you live in has an agenda, and uh, that agenda is not from God. Uh, It is an agenda, and sometimes it's hard for us to recognize uh, what's really uh, uh, behind that uh, kind of agenda. Uh, I couldn't help but laugh yesterday. I I watched uh, football all day. I just kind of OD'd on it. At a certain point in time, I think my eyes were rolled back in my head and. And, you know, there was probably saliva running down my mouth. My wife said, you know, how much of this are you going to watch? I said, how much of it's going to be on? And, um, man, I just watch and watch it. But I couldn't help but think about something kind of ironic. Right now, we're in a culture that has sent a message out saying, um, you know, it's not wise to go to church. Because church is a dangerous place and uh, because of... COVID and those sorts of things. And so uh, that message, and those of us in ministry have heard it loud and clear. A lot of times, unfortunately, even from Christians saying, don't need to gather, don't need to gather. By the way, just a footnote, the church is not the church of the New Testament unless it's a gathered church. That doesn't mean, and I'm so grateful for our live stream and television and all of those kinds of things. They're so important. They're helpful because there are people that can't gather right now. And I understand all of that, that sort of thing. But you need to understand. There's a growing narrative and agenda in our culture that is birthed in hell, Amen. and it's and it's not just you say. Well, it's it's in the government. Look, there's a source beyond the narrative that you're living in today, and you need to understand that the source of the agenda. And but I couldn't help but as I watched yesterday, I thought, isn't this isn't this fascinating? The very same people that are saying it's dangerous to go to church have filled by the hundreds of thousands football stadiums where they're arm in arm, they're slobbering all over each other and yelling and screaming. And, and uh, I, I've been, we've been season ticket holders for a team for years. We didn't renew this year, but had nothing to do with that. But I couldn't help but think, isn't that interesting? And the cultural narrative is no problem. But watch out if you go to Church. Uh, Because at church, you could come down with something. That's the the agenda that we're hearing. There's all kinds of agendas. Did you know, however, that God has an agenda for your life? Do you know God has an agenda for your life? And and, and your life ultimately, ultimately it's going to be governed by one of two agendas. One is the world's agenda, which is actually uh, an agenda from the enemy of our soul. Because you say, well, how can you say that? Because there are a lot of good things in our... Yeah, I understand all that. But still, the agenda of the world eventually is agenda against the kingdom of God. Amen. Am I making sense? Yes. How do I know that? Because Paul, writing in Ephesians 6, said, the prince and power of this world. And he, he has been allowed to, to kind of oversee this domain under the auspices of God's allowance, but it's not going to last forever. Amen. So there, ultimately, there are only two agendas. There is a nefarious agenda, and then there is a kingdom of God agenda. Am I making sense? And we need to understand, it's very important. You all know the name Billy Graham. I mean, there's a lot of young folks in here that haven't, didn't experience much of Billy Graham, but how many of you know at least the name Billy Graham? There are few people that at least don't know the name Billy Graham. Uh, Well, Billy Graham, uh, before he became the Billy Graham of such uh, uh, kingdom influence, uh, he went to a small school in uh, Temple Terrace, Florida, um, uh, the Florida Bible Institute. I'm very familiar with it. I've spoken in their chapel when I pastored down in Florida because it wasn't far from my church. And of course, their great claim to fame is this is where Billy Graham started, and it it certainly is. And Graham would tell you, uh, would would have told you that uh, if he were here uh, uh, today. In fact, he did in his biographies. But when he went there, he fell in love with this uh, this dark-haired beauty named Emily Cavanaugh. And a lot of people don't know this that he fell in love with her, and they dated for about four months. And after about four months, he asked her to marry him. And there was a break between semesters, and so um, she said, well, I, I, I'll, I'll certainly, I've got to think on that. Well, he took that as a yes. Well, she, they came back to school after semester break, and they were scheduled to go to the biggest social event on the campus of that semester. And on the eve of that, Emily Cavanaugh told Billy Graham she couldn't marry him. And she said, because I'm in love with your best friend, Charles Massey. Not only that, listen to this. She went on to say to Billy Graham, I I know God wants me to marry a preacher, but I really believe he wants me to marry a preacher that's going to have the greatest influence and impact for the kingdom. (laughs) And she married Charles Massey. By the way, just a little footnote. And, you know, Billy Graham married Ruth. Well, years later, after Billy Graham has world fame as a preacher, they're at this some kind of um, ministry gathering, whatever it is, and Charles Massey and Emily Cavanaugh are at this gathering, and Ruth Graham, Billy's wife, You know, she said, I couldn't wait to meet this Emily Cavanaugh who had dumped my Billy, and, you know, I wanted to just meet her. And he said, I figure uh, when I met her, she's going to be a scraggly-haired, toothless woman. (laughs) And she said, and when I met her, dadgummit, she was drop-dead gorgeous. Well, at any rate, so Billy Graham was heartbroken, and when she broke up with him, and, and he wrote to one of his best friends, a man named Wendell Phillips, and this is what he said. He said, and I quote, All the stars have fallen out of my sky. There's nothing for me to live for. We have broken up. And, and for months after that happened, Billy said he would, at night, he would take long walks there by himself, contemplating uh, co- what was next for him, doubting himself, questioning everything in his life, he said. But on one of those nights where he's walking by himself, May of 1938, he's walking on the, the golf course there, Temple Terrace. He's walking on this golf course, and he's talking to God. And he said, it was a quiet, wonderful evening. He said, all of a sudden, as I'm walking and talking to God, I sensed that God was speaking to me and that God said to me, Billy, I want to use you and he said, at that point, I kneeled down the edge of one of the greens, and he said, kneeling didn't seem like enough, and he said, then I just laid prostrate on the green, and I laid out before God, and I said to God on that dewy turf, all right, Lord, if you want me, you've got me. I'll be what you want me to be. I'll go where you want me to go, and by the way, in his autobiography just as i am which i highly recommend to you he, he says he, he he said i made that commitment i'll go wherever you want i'll be whoever you want i'll do whatever you want right there on that golf course and he said the the moonlight and the moss and the breeze and the golf course they're all right there were were beautiful at that moment but he said Nothing changed about them. There were no signs. There were no stars that shot across the sky. There was no voice from heaven. But in my spirit, he said, I knew that I had been called to the ministry, and I knew that my answer was yes. After that, he wrote back to Wendell Phillips, you know, the guy who wrote and said, all the stars in my life have fallen. There's nothing for me to live for. He wrote Wendell another letter, and listen to what he said in this letter. I've settled it once and for all with the Lord. No girl or friend or anything shall ever come first in my life. I have resolved that the Lord Jesus Christ shall have all of me. I care not what the future holds. I have determined to follow him at all cost. It's one of the two or three great turning points in the life of Billy Graham. It was his decision in that moment To say, I will follow the agenda of God wherever it leads me and whatever it costs me. I wonder, have you ever had that kind of meeting with God? Oh, maybe not on a golf course or in a starry night or as a result of some heartbreak or something. But have you ever just had that kind of meeting with God in which you said, God, no matter what becomes me, I will follow your agenda. I will follow you wholeheartedly. Have you ever said to God, God, if you want me, you've got me. God, nothing shall ever come first in my life over you. Have you ever had that kind of meeting? I want to talk to you today about what I've called the most powerful guiding principle in life. The most powerful guiding principle in life. What is it? Here it is, simply put. The most powerful guiding principle For your life, let God set your agenda. Let God set your agenda. And that's what I want us to look at this morning. Because, you see, I'm convinced that most Christians are living an agenda that they have set and are just really kind of hoping that God will bless the agenda they've set. Maybe with good intentions. Maybe with a hope that this is is something that that God will, will be pleased with. But if you're doing that, it's backwards. You see, it doesn't start with my agenda being spiritualized for God. It starts with God's agenda shaping the rest of my agenda and my life. And so that's what I want us to look at this morning. That's what I want us to see. Just remain seated. Look at two verses 30 and 31 in this chapter. I'm breaking in. I'll come back and give you some background. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Okay, just look this way for a second. He said, I will not talk with you much more. Here, This is the final discourse, and what he's doing is he's telling his closest followers, his closest associates, he's saying, look, we're not going to be able to talk a whole lot more because the ruler of this world, isn't that interesting? It was really going to be the Roman soldiers, and it was going to be Pilate, and it was going to be all of these who were going to come for him, arrest him, and try him. But he says, did you notice, the ruler of this world, because Jesus knew that there was a more nefarious agenda going on, and though it would be carried out through the Roman centurions and through Pilate and all of these tribunals, it would be carried out that way. Jesus knew that it was really sourced out of hell. Amen. Does that make sense? Yes. And so he says, well, "So I'm not going to be." Here. And 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 the ruler of this world is coming, and he thinks. He thinks. That he's going to defeat me. but look on. but notice his next statement, He has no claim on me. Did you see this reminds us how limited the devil is in advancing his agenda. You see, the devil thought that if he could kill Jesus, he would, he would undermine everything that the kingdom of God was trying to do. He didn't understand that that, that was all part of God's agenda that would enable us to be made right with God. In fact, later on in Corinthians, Paul would write and say, if the powers that be, the powers of darkness, of hell, had have known what uh, the death of Jesus Christ meant, it says they would have never killed the Lord of glory. So Jesus says he's coming. He thinks he's, he's about to win, but he has no claim on me. And then look at verse 31. But I do... And here's one of the reasons he had no claim on him, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise and let us go from here. Now, Lord, would you speak into our hearts this truth? Remind us, God, of this great principle of allowing your agenda to be the agenda of our life. Speak to us now. May the, uh, the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable to you, O oh Lord, uh, my rock and my redeemer, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, as I said, let me give you some background. Uh, These two verses are still part of what, well, last week we were in John 15. This is all part, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, the final discourse. Part of it is carried out in the upper room, and it's part of this final discourse of God, uh, I mean, of Jesus, with his followers to give them final instructions. I mean, that's really what it's all about. And this is part of that. These two verses are part, part uh, of that. And he talks about, as I said, his physical departure. He's about to be crucified, and he's about to be physically taken from them. And he refers to this imminent uh, cosmic spiritual battle that was coming in which Satan would attempt to defeat Jesus with the death on the cross. And Jesus Affirms that the devil doesn't know what he's up to. He has no claim on me. And the reason he has no claim on me is because I do what the Father commands me. I'm not doing what the devil commands me. I'm doing what the Father commands me. So he has no claim on me. Look back at verse 29. Let me show you something. And now I told you before uh, uh, it takes place uh, so that when it does take place, you may believe. If you if you read through these chapters, this final discourse, you keep seeing this idea reoccurring. The idea is this. I'm telling you in advance, these things I've told you, these things I've told you, you see it repeated over and over. What is Jesus doing? He's saying to his uh, followers, he's saying, look, I want you to know before it happens so you won't be surprised when it happens. Now, they would come back, you would see them come back and sing, and then they remember, after all this happens, you see in the scripture it records that they would come back and say, and then they remembered. They remember what he told them, what he told them, what he told them. I want to tell you something, just as a little footnote right now. Always say, what did Jesus tell us? Because that's how the story finishes. The world will tell you one thing because it has an agenda, and that agenda is not a kingdom agenda, but the kingdom of God has a, the ultimate agenda. And so that's why, by the way, when it comes to prophetic things, we look and say, Yeah, but what did Jesus say? And how do we see those kinds of things reflected in the age in which we live and all of that sort of stuff? And so Jesus told them these things in advance. He said, I want you to know right up front, here's what's going to happen so that you will, not, first of all, he didn't want us to get discouraged. He didn't want them to be discouraged. He's already told them at the beginning of this chapter, let not your heart be troubled or literally thrown into chaos. And so he says, I'm going to tell you some things. Some of it's going to be hard stuff, but I'm going to tell you because when it happens, I don't want you to go, we didn't see this coming. But Jesus says, so you'll know in advance what to look for and what to expect. And perhaps the most powerful precept here is that uh, it could be put this way: that living by the agenda of God prevents the devil's schemes and 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 his attempt to undermine victory in our life. I mean, because because see that he, he says uh, quite clearly he has no claim on me because I do what the Father so the. This ultimate kind of principle is that when you and I live by the agenda of God, it disables the devil's ability to exercise victory over us if we're living by the agenda of God. Now it makes sense when I say it like that. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is trying to help them understand. So let me give you four insights from our our, our passage this morning uh, as to why the agenda of God should be the guiding principle of your life. Number one, the agenda of God is significant. That's why it ought to be the guiding principle of your life. That's one of the four reasons I want to give you this morning. Verse 31, we're going to find them all right here in this one verse. It says, I do as the father has commanded me. Jesus is saying that the commands of the father are more significant than anything else in life. And so he says, I do what the Father has commanded me. The agenda of God is significant. And by the way, throughout this message, I'm going to talk about the will of God uh, and the agenda of God. Those are interchangeable, okay? So if you're living the agenda of God, guess what? You're living out the will of God or in the will of God. If you're living in the will of God, guess what? You're living out the agenda of God. Does that make sense? Y'all, y'all not. if that makes sense, okay? All right. Now, so the, the, the agenda of God is significant. Jesus is teaching us here in verse 31. <clears throat> there is nothing in heaven or on earth more significant than the will of God for your life. Nothing, not one thing. You can't point to anything and say, well, yeah, but this over here is just a little more important than the will of God. You say, how do we know nothing is more important? Well, listen to what Jesus said. Do you remember when Jesus was teaching the, the disciples to pray? He was te- we call it the Lord's Prayer, and he was teaching them to pray. Do you remember at a certain point he says, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. You remember the rest of it? On earth as it is in heaven. What was Jesus saying? There's nothing, there's nothing on in heaven or on earth more significant than the will of God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And that's why, that's why you never go wrong when you live in the will of God. There's nothing more significant in life and in your life in particular. Charles Wendall said, God doesn't work on our timetable. He doesn't work on our timetable. He has a plan that he's going to execute perfectly and for the highest, greatest good of all and ultimately for his glory. All right. That's the reason the agenda of God is significant. I'll tell you this, not only is it significant because it's more important than anything on heaven and earth, but the will of God is more significant than our personal desires. The will of God is more significant than your personal desires. Henry Blackaby said this, our difficulty is not that we don't know God's will. That's not our uh, difficulty is that we don't know God's will. He said our discomfort comes from the fact that when we do know his will, we just don't want to do it. We just don't want to do it. I think that's exactly right because our desires say, yeah, but God's will may put me in an awkward position. God's will, doing God's will, living by the agenda of God uh, may put me cross grained to some. I'll talk about that a little bit uh, in just a few minutes. Uh, So it becomes uncomfortable because I have an agenda that I really want God to bless. And if God's agenda is more important than my agenda, it may be very uncomfortable to me. And so I have to understand that God's agenda is more significant than my desires. Do you remember when Jesus went into the garden? Remember, right before he's arrested, not long after this, he goes to the garden, and he goes there to pray. Y'all remember that? Do it like this. This means yes. Uh, this means yes right here. So, yeah, so he, went, he goes to the, the garden to pray, takes some disciples. They fall asleep. You, you got all that, that. And he goes on a little beyond them, and he kneels down, and he begins to talk uh, to his Father in heaven. Do y'all remember what he prayed? Anybody remember what he prayed? He said, What? Father, is, is it possible for this cup to pass from me? Now, what does that tell you about him? First of all, Jesus was God and man. We call it the deity of Christ. He was fully man, he was fully God. And what it tells you, though, you see the human side of him. He's saying, I know what's coming. And God, is there some way that we can do this another way? In other words, he was saying the physical side of me just really, my desire is not to do it. But then he adds the famous line, you know it, right? The famous line, what does he put on that? Father, is there any way for this cup to pass from me? But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad? You see, what he was saying is, God, your will is more significant than my will. God, your will is more significant than my desires. But let me tell you that the agenda of God is significant also because it brings satisfaction to our lives. You know, satisfaction, when you're, Corrie ten Boom, a great saint, she was in Auschwitz, she and her sister, Ravensbrück, I should rephrase that, and her sister died under the hands of the, the Nazis, but she lived, she survived, became an incredible servant of God around the world, is in heaven now, but she had this great line, she said, the safest place in the world that any human can live is in the middle of God's will. It's the safest place in the world for a person to to live. And I'll tell you something. In the middle of God's will, there's satisfaction. I did not say that in the middle of God's will, there will not be conflict or even pain or difficulty. But there's great satisfaction. And you see, part of the uh, trouble for us sometimes in trying to, to follow the agenda of God is it can be uncomfortable. Or following the agenda of God might mean that we have to we have to obey God in something that's uncomfortable or we don't want to do. But the fact is, it is the place of satisfaction. You, uh, when you walk in the will of God, you'll, be, you'll find your soul is satisfied. Jesus in John chapter 4, uh, if you're familiar with John chapter 4, part of chapter 4 is about a woman, we call her the woman at the well, she came to the well for, for water. She is a Samaritan. And Jews and Samaritans didn't get along, particularly Jewish men and Samaritan women. They had no communication. They come to the well, and the woman is there. Are, y'all know the story I'm talking about? Yeah, the woman at the well. And so she's there to draw water. She would come several times. That was customary. Jesus is there with the disciples to take a break. They'd been traveling, and they come there just to take a break and refresh themselves, okay? Now, I'll just tell you this. The disciples were Baptist. All right? And that chapter proves it. Because they came with Jesus there to take a break, and when Jesus sat down to rest, they said, we're going back into town, and we're getting food. And we'll be back with a meal. So that's how we know there were Baptists. Baptists rarely can do anything without having food attached somewhere. So... But, and they do. And then they come back, and they have food, and they say, Jesus, you, you need to eat. Y'all understand this is a loose translation. They say, Jesus, you need to eat. And Jesus utters this line to them. He says, I've already eaten. Well, he didn't say it quite like that. He said, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me. That's my food. And they... They still didn't get it because they were bad, And they looked at each other and said, has somebody already beat us here with food? But Jesus was saying something very profound to us. He was saying that he is satisfied. It satisfies his soul to do the will of God. It is the most satisfying place that you can be in life. Charles Spurgeon said this, when your will is God's will, you will have your will. When your will is God's will, in other words, you'll be satisfied that you're in, that your will is His will. Okay, here's the second thing I want you to note. Not only is the agenda of God significant, the agenda of God is selfless. Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded. You say, didn't we just talk about that? Yeah, but let's talk about a different side of that. I do what the Father has commanded, not what I want, not what I think, but what the Father said, we must always remember that the agenda or the will of God, listen, is not about us. An old commentator and preacher by the name of Harry Ironside said this, the greatest mistake any Christian can make is to substitute his own will for the will of God. Now let me tell you, there are a lot of difficult things to have victory over in, in life. But the, maybe the hardest thing to get over in life is to get over yourself. The Bible says this, no man ever hated his own flesh, but actually uh, cherishes it and nurtures it. In the Greek, the idea is hug, uh, like hugging yourself. No man ever hated his own flesh, but loves it and hugs it and nourishes it and cherishes it. One of the hardest things in life, would you agree, is to get over yourself? It's just hard, isn't it? Uh, it's hard to get out of the way. It's hard to do uh, uh, what John the Baptist did when Jesus came on the scene. He said, I must decrease and he must increase. That should be our motto. It really should. We ought to get up every day and say, God, I, I need to, to decrease. I got up this morning and I said, God, I want to empty myself so you can fill me up. Because here's what I found out. I found out that, that it's real easy for me to fill myself with me. And so I find myself daily having to to empty and let him fill. The agenda of God is a selfless agenda. And that's why Paul would write in Colossians and say, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things on the earth. Why is that? Set your mind on things that we've got, because that's the ultimate, that's the eternal. And the things, if you are governed by the agenda of this world, guess what? That's the temporary things. And, and the scriptures already said, the temporary things are passing away. So our focus has to be not on self. Our focus has to be on God. The will of God, by the way, is directly related then to the Word of God. So did you notice Jesus said, I do what the Father commanded me? That's the Word of God. Here's what God says. He says, here's what I do. Adrian Rogers said, much of God's will for you is already found in the Bible. People say, well, I want to do the will of God. Well, much of it, start obeying what he's already told you. Because a whole bunch of it's already there. There are things you just don't even have to pray about. God wants you to be a witness to people around you in your world, wherever you may be. He wants you to be a, a witness. And there are lots of ways that we are witnesses for God. But the fact is, you don't have to pray about that. If I say, now be a witness this week for the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have to come and say, Pastor, I want to, but I need to pray about it first. You don't have to do that. You know why? Because He's already commanded you to be a witness, go into all the world and make disciples. So you've already been commanded to be a representative and you are ambassadors, Paul said. So there's some. My point is there are things that are already very plainly articulated in the scripture. So you don't have to say, Well, I I might do that, but I want to pray. There much of God's will is already there. What we have to do is ask the question. The question is, what does God uh, what does God want me to do? And by the way, that's a different question than saying, what do I want to do for God? What does God want me to do? And by, here's an even tougher question that we have to ask every so often and that is, God, what is it that you've instructed me to do that I'm not doing? Because I want to be in your will. Elizabeth Elliot, she was married to Jim Elliott. they were missionaries, young missionaries in their 20 to the Aka Indians. And uh, in Ecuador, and he lost his life. It's a fascinating book. book. Uh, She's written a lot of things through Gates of Splendor, their story. It's a fascinating uh, book how he was killed along with several other uh, missionaries that, that went down to reach this nomadic tribal people. They were cannibals. They killed him. Uh, she of course and others uh, were not but she went on to write a whole bunch of stuff and she she talks about in one of her her books she says this the will of god is not something you add to your life in other words you don't just say okay the will of god i'm going to add that to all the other things i'm the will of god is not something you add to your life it is a course you choose in other words it is a way that you walk it's a course you, you choose. You either line yourself up with the Son of God or you capitulate to the principles which govern the rest of the world. Did you know, you know what the early church called, called Christians, fully devoted Christians? People of the way. The way. Because Jesus talked about, I am the way. Jesus said there's a way, or the scripture says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it is a way of destruction. The way, the way, walk in the way, and you will see the way. God said, I will will point out the way to you and walk you in the way. Do not turn to your right or to your left, but walk in the way. And she, that's what she said, we align ourselves with the way of God. Listen to me, when you align yourself and walk in the way of God, guess what you're doing? You are walking the agenda of God. You are walking in the will of God. And then that leads us to a third thing that I want you to see this morning, and that is I want you to note the agenda of God is not only significant and not only selfless, the agenda of God is sacred. It's sacred because it comes down from the Father. And by the way, the agenda of God connects you to the purpose of God for your life. That's why it's satisfying as we talked. This is a divine operation. If you're a believer, you're a part of a divine operation that is going to be accomplished. This divine agenda of God, it is going to be accomplished. The question is, will you be a part of it? That's a. That's a A gracious offer God makes to you, it is not a requirement that he needs to accomplish his agenda. Hello? By the way, join us on Wednesday nights. I'm talking about the sovereignty of God. What does that mean? What does that look like in our lives? And our ability to make choices and how those choices uh, affect us in the big context of his uh, sovereign will. But it's sacred. This is a sacred thing. His his agenda is a sacred thing. That's why it's so important. That's why it's come down from Him. When your life is guided by God's agenda, it's going to reveal a couple of things to you. Write this down. Number one, it's going to reveal your loyalty to the King. If you are walking in the will of God, it is going to reveal your loyalty to the King. As the Father has commanded me, the orders. what Jesus is saying? The orders have come down from above, and they're not suggestions. They're not. Uh, they're not optional things. In our congregation, we have a lot of retired military guys, and you can ask any one of them. You can ask them this question. Well, when you were, and, and a, a number of them were military leaders. They had uh, high ranks, and you can ask them a question like this: When you were in the military, most of them were combat uh, tested. Uh, uh, veterans, and you, when you received an order, did you go, well, here's an order that's come down from my superiors. I'm going to have to pray about this. I'm going to think about this. this I, I, did they tell or do they today in the military go and say, hmm, I, we may or may not do that. What do y'all think? Let's take a vote. Y'all think we ought to do this, that sort of thing? No, they say, here are the orders. Our responsibility out of loyalty to those who are our superiors are to carry out the mission. Do you know what? That's exactly the picture of God and his agenda delivered to us. And what God is saying, this is not optional. That's why Jesus said, I do as the Father has commanded me. In another place in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, he said, I always, listen to that, I always do what the Father commands. Not sometimes, not occasionally. Jesus didn't say, you know, I've got these commands from God. I'm going to think about them. I've memorized them. I want to debate these things before I initiate them. No, he says my loyalty is to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. This is a divine operation. Just as the Father has commanded, me. I obey? And that's the question you and I, if we're going to walk in the way of God, if we're going to walk the agenda of God, if we're going to walk the will of God, we have to say God, whatever you command, I will always do. It reveals your loyalty to the King. It, It It proves that we trust. We trust in him. There's a second thing it reveals, too. It reveals your love for the king. So it reveals your loyalty to the king, but it also reveals your love for the king. Notice in verse 31. Look there in verse 31. He says why. So that the world may know that I love the Father. When you are walking in the will of God, even if it's uncomfortable for you or it's not your will, guess what What it says? It says, I love God. I love God so much that I trust God and I trust His will. And these are the orders I am loyal to. And by the way, loving God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind is the great commandment. This is a great principle, but that's a great commandment. And when you fall in love with God, guess what happens instinctively? Loyalty. The best kind of loyalty is loyalty that's a result of love, wouldn't you say? Because I love the Father. Because I love this person in my life, I am loyal to that person. Well, that's what happens. Love for Him causes us to say, I'll do whatever He tells me to do because I love Him. And by the way, if you love him, guess what the Bible says? You love him because he first loved you. Let me tell you a story. Um, I'm not sure this is true. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not true, but it illustrates the point. The story is told of of a nation who loved their king. Uh, In fact, he was a good king. He looked after them. He took care of them. And the nation just loved him. They adored him. They followed him. Whatever he, however he led, they wanted to, to follow his leadership. And then they, they were all called, the, as many people as possible were summoned to, uh, to the capital square of this nation and For a certain day, there was an announcement to be made, and they all gathered there. And there were literally a throng; there were thousands upon thousands. The square was full of people, and they were all chanting for the king. We love the king, and and it was overwhelming. The aide came out over this area that kind of looked out over the people, and they were just so moved. The aide to the king said, You're, "You know, it's incredible this crowd, and they're 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 out there, and they're." They want to hear what what message you have for them. And so the aide goes out and he says, "I, I bring forth this message from the king, the reason we've assembled you. The king, we have discovered, has a heart issue. And the only way the king can be saved is to have a heart transplant. And the king loves you and he wants to continue to lead this people, but someone must provide a heart for him. And so I bring this message to ask, is there anyone today who would offer their heart so that the king could continue to lead? And they would, uh, give, And people, often that suddenly you hear some, somebody say, my heart for the king. And it's kind of like the wave, you know, in a stadium. And before long you hear a number, my heart for the king. 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 And it it starts to grow and it gets more and more until finally the whole throng, it seems, is screaming, "My heart for the king. My heart for the king. My heart for the king." They were overwhelmed, and the aide told the king, "says You, you, you've got to see this." The king comes out and the people even more. "My heart for the king. My heart for the king. My heart for the king." And then they had a, a dilemma. How do you choose? They were overwhelmed. And the king and the aide confer. And finally, the aide comes back and says, the king is just overwhelmed with such gratitude and sacrifice. He doesn't know how to select. And so what we're going to do is we're going to float this feather out over the audience with so many people wanting to offer their heart for the king. And whoever the feather shall rest upon will have the great honor of giving their heart so the king may live. Whew, there it goes. It's floating. The people are watching. And they're still chanting, my heart for the king. My heart for the king. And it gets lower and lower. And it begins to come near individuals. And they're going. They're still screaming. And as it begins to s- descend toward a, a person, that, uh, you can see and hear, my heart for the king. Whew! As it floats near someone, my heart for the king. You see, it wasn't a real confession, was it? It wasn't a real expression of love. My heart for the king means I love you, but not really, not sacrificially. Dear friend, when you live the agenda of God, you know what you're really doing? You're really doing more than just saying, oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Oh, yeah, I love God. You know what you're doing? When you live the agenda of God, you're saying, I really do love God. And because I love him, I'm loyal to him. There's one final thing I want you to see this morning, and that is I want you to note the agenda of God is separating. It is separating. Verse 31, look at this. He says, why? why that the world may know. Simply put, when you and I live by the agenda or the will of God, it distinguishes us from those who do not. He says it right here that the world may know. In other words, that they may see the difference, that they will know that I love God, but they'll see the distinct difference. The agenda of God, when you live and obey the commands of God and walk in the will of God, it distinguishes you from the rest of the world. But here's the deal. If you and I do not live any different from the world, listen, then we are not walking in the will of god if you're walking in the will of god it will separate you from the world paul wrote to the corinthians the corinthians they had a it was a church full of pathology i mean these folk and sin i might add but it was a church, I've been there, I've been to Corinth, you can't find remains, but you can't, the church physically no longer exists there, and I think they're real. go read 1 and 2 Corinthians, you'll know why it no longer exists, God will eventually say enough, I've had enough. But Paul writes to them, he writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and he, it's an interesting statement, he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I believe it's verse 3, he says, you are living like mere men. Here's what he's saying to them. We can't, the world can't tell any difference in your life and their life. And so he says, You're carnal. You're actually living in the flesh. And out in the world, nobody knows the difference because you look just like them. I want to ask you this morning do you look different than the people around you? I don't mean weird. I'm not saying, Well, I need to get weird. I'm saying, Are your values different? Is your attitude different? Are the things that are most valuable to you, is that different? You see, you couldn't tell the difference in the Corinthians. They could just live out there and nobody. Because when they walked out of the church, the Corinthian church, guess what? They sucked in the same values and everything else that the world did. Now, if you and I are not separate, and by the way, Paul writes later and says, come out from among them and be separate. But if we're not separate from the world, we have nothing to offer the world. And I'm afraid too many Christians have become more concerned about fitting in with the crowd than they are standing up for the King. I just want to blend in. I, I, I you know, I don't, I won't, don't want to be rejected by the world. Can I ask you this morning, is there a distinction between your life and the life of those who don't know God? I don't want to be, I don't, I don't want to look foolish. A lot of times we're, we're driven by, I, I just want, I, I don't want to stand, I don't want to look funky to the, the world out there. I don't want them to think I'm, I'm a fool or I'm foolish. I, I just don't want that. Listen, listen to me this morning. I want to, I want to tell you something. Very, and it's going to be more important in the days ahead that you understand this. Because I'm convinced that Satan has unleashed both barrels on the church in America. And you better you better get this. Somebody asked me what I think is going on. I think, listen, since you ask, I think God's purging the church. I think God's purging the church. And getting us ready for stuff that's coming that we've never thought we'd have to deal with. I mean the biblical church. But if you say, well, I, I don't want to look foolish out there. listen, the Bible's already said, if you're going to live for Christ, the world's going to consider you a fool. Um, and you better get over that idea that a lost world is going to suddenly accept you. You see, And if you're not distinctively different in your lifestyle and your habits and your values and the way you think and all of that, guess what? What what difference do you have to offer them? Nothing, because they already don't understand salvation. But if they call you a fool, it's okay. Do you know that? It's okay. Now, let me tell you, did you know Paul declared himself a fool for God? This is Paul. Listen to what he said in 1 Corinthians 4. And 410 and Paul, he said, We are fools for Christ's sake. To this present hour, we hunger and thirst, we're poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we encourage. We've become, listen to this statement Paul said, we have become and are still like the scum of the world. We are the refuse of all things. That's what Paul said. I do not write these things, he goes on to say, to make you ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christ because you are considered a fool. Don't be ashamed of Christ because you are like the scum of the world to them, to the world. He said, don't be ashamed of that. But he said, I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children. As children, I just want to encourage you, he said. It's okay that the world doesn't get you. It's okay. And and later he would go, therefore, go, go, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Be different. He knew they were continuing to struggle with the very things we struggle with. And that is living in the will of God in a world that is hostile or ignorant to the will of God. And there's plenty in the Bible that, uh, to encourage us about those kinds of things. And if we're not distinctly different, what do we offer them? When I was a teenager, I read a quote by Chief Justice in the early part of the 20th century, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. He never accepted, uh, accepted Christ. He had a good friend that was a pastor. That's another story. But he never accepted Christ. Oliver Wendell Holmes, chief justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, and he made this statement. I never forgot it. Read as a teenager. He said, I would have become a Christian, but I knew too many. They were no different than me. That's what he's really saying. There was no distinction in them. They hadn't come out. Their, their life was just like my life I was. Well, why do, I knew them, and they, they had nothing to offer me. Do you know if we are not distinctively different because we're walking in the will of God, we don't look any different than those who don't know Christ. So why would they even want what we profess? Does that make sense? So that's why when we go out of this place, it's more important. Look. It's most important that you walk in the agenda of God when you walk out of this place so that the the world can see that there is a distinction in the way we live. I read this past week as I was working on this message uh, a a quote from a a Russian dissident, an exile who is in America, uh, but for years he suffered for his faith in Russia. And this is what he said, In Russia, Christians are tested by hardship. But in America, he said, you were tested by freedom. And testing by freedom, he adds, is much harder than being tested by hardship. Isn't that strange? Being tested by freedom is much harder, he says. And so consequently, you relax and you're not so focused on Christ and on His teaching and how He wants you to live. Can I ask you as I close, have you... Have you relaxed your focus? Have you relaxed your your commitment to live by the agenda of God? I just remind you today that the agenda of God is the most powerful guiding principle of life. And that's why you and I have to say, Lord, you set the agenda of my life. Now, how do you respond? Well... I think there are at least three ways you respond. First of all, if you're here today or you're watching by live stream and you have never trusted in Christ, you cannot walk in the will of God. But I can tell you this, trusting in Christ is the will of God. And you can do it today, watching us live stream, television. You can do it in this live audience. You can call on him. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so if if you've never truly, you may have said, well, I've been religious, I've been going to church all my life. Listen, none of that counts if you've never trusted Christ personally as your Savior. And so if you want to walk in the will of God, begin here. Repent, turn to Him. In just a moment, I'm going to step down here. Staff members are going to step down here. And if that's you, you you come and just take one of us and say, you know what? I can't walk in the will of God because I've never truly trusted Him, but today I want to change that. What's the second response? You say, well, I have trusted in Christ, but, but you know what I've been doing? I've been wandering in the wilderness, really, in the wilderness. I hadn't been walking in the way. I've been walking to the right and to the left. And, and, but I have, and I know how, and I want to return to him. Would you just say to him, God, I've been in the wilderness. I want to return to the way. From the wilderness to the way, the path of righteousness the path of his will, the agenda that he has for your life. Lord, for my life, I want to return to the way. Or maybe you're here and say, Pastor, I don't fit either one of those categories. I really right now can say that I am walking the agenda of God. Praise God uh, for for you because there are many, many believers all over the globe that are walking in the way of God. Thank God for that. And that may be you. You may say, yep, that's me. I'm I'm there. Be careful not to deceive yourself, by the way. But if you can say that, you say, so what should I do? Keep walking in the way. And tell God, thank you for directing my path. Make me sensitive. And Lord, look, do something every day. Get up every day and say, I surrender me to you. I empty me of me and fill me with you so that I may walk in your way today. And you know what? You may find out that you take back over about halfway through the day. Maybe even sooner. What do you do? Surrender all over to the way, to His way, to His agenda, His will. I promise you this this morning, that if you want to walk in His will, He will make it known to you. He will make it because He wants you walking in the way even more than you do for yourself. Would you bow your head, close your eyes, and stand quietly to your feet Bradley's going to come back, and he's going to play in just a moment with heads bowed and eyes closed. I want to invite you to do something. Do what people have already done today. Some of you maybe want to come and kneel around this altar. And by the way, if you want to do that, you can go ahead and do that right now. You just slip out with heads bowed and eyes closed. You come on down, kneel uh, here, and begin to talk with the Lord. I don't know what it's about. He does, and you do, and that's what's important. But I'll be down here in the front in just a moment. Our staff will be on the aisles. And if you say, I, 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 today I need to trust Christ as my Savior. Would you slip out and would you come? If you're here today and you say, I have done that, but uh, I need a church home and I want Ridgecrest to be my church home. Christ is my Savior. I just need a church family. You'll do. Others have already done that today and I invite you to do that. Those of you who are watching by live stream, just text the word join or pastor to the number that is uh, on your screen, 334-384-8080. Text whatever your decision is, join, baptize, uh, pastor, we'll know what that means if you pray to receive Christ. Any of these things, you text to us, and we'll take it from there. Don't you worry about it. But in this live audience, you can slip out. You can come. I'm here to greet you. Others are here to receive you. Whatever the decision is, Lord, would you speak right now? Speak into our hearts, and I pray all over this room, God, and all over our viewing audience that you're causing people to say yes to you. Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes, whatever it is. I'm in. With heads continued, bowed and eyes closed, the invitation is now open to you. Would you slip out right now? I'm here to receive you. Other staff are here to receive you. Right now, heads bowed, eyes closed. Before we're gone, you come on balcony, this ground floor, you slip out right now.